TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo and it's great to be here on our next podcast. Backchat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today's Backchat is a Backchat podcast with a difference, as I'm discussing the area of chiropractic that influences the profession's politics and education in Australia. I'll preface by releasing a Facebook post I sent to some Australian Facebook forums. The Rubicon Conference is coming to Melbourne on April 8th and 9th, 2017. Rubicon states, we invite you to join your colleagues from around the world as we gather in Melbourne for the annual conference of the Rubicon Group. We are pleased to be visiting Australia as we support the efforts related to the development and implementation of the Australian College of Chiropractic in Adelaide, South Australia. For some, there's uncertainty about the role of the Rubicon Group. Backchat Podcast has asked to interview an Executive Director of Rubicon, Dr. Jerry Clum, for an open discussion, transparency, and look to answer some misconceptions. And Jerry has kindly accepted. I've asked some forums from all persuasions of chiropractic to submit some questions, and I've included these in the back end of the podcast. We've made the final call on, on, on these questions based on the duration of the podcast. We can, can't be here for hours, and also keeping it to the relevance to Australia. So firstly, let's, let me give you a biog of Dr. Jerry Clum. So Dr. Klum is a 1973 graduate of the Palmer College of Chiropractic who has been active in the educational infrastructure aspects of the chiropractic profession through his entire career. Dr. Klum served for 30 years as the president of Life, College, Life Chiropractic College West in San Francisco area and presently holds a faculty appointment in Life University, Atlanta, Georgia, USA, and serves as the executive director of a collaboration of seven chiropractic institutions from three continents known as the Rubicon Group. Dr. Klum has served as an officer or member of the Board of Directors of the Council of Chiropractic Education, US, the Association of Chiropractic Colleges, the World Federation of Chiropractic, and the International Chiropractic Association, the Integrated Health, Health Policy Consortium, and the Foundation for Chiropractic Progress. Hi, Jerry. How are you going? I'm doing well, my friend. Great to be with you. What's it like in San Francisco? What's that weather like? It's in the in our we call it the seventies. You call it the twenties. Uh, very comfortable, nice day, and uh, uh, we're about to we're coming into our springtime as you as you head into your fall, uh, and so it's a nice time of year around the, the San Francisco Bay Area. Beautiful. Now, Jerry, from that description, it doesn't look like, look like to me that you're retired. Well, my wife and I have had one disagreement disagreement over this thing, and it has to do with whether that retirement has a capital R or a little r. Right. And uh, she thought it had a capital R, and I thought it had a little r. Um, I did retire from the presidency of Life Chiropractic College West in 2011 after 30 years, as you said. Had a great run, uh, but it was time for me to leave the college and, and let someone else take over, and and um, and that worked out very, very well. But I'm... Uh, I'm not ready to, to stop working, not ready to stop my participation and engagement with the chiropractic profession. And fortunately, I've had other opportunities that have uh, come to light as a, after I left Life West that have allowed me to continue my involvement. And I'm very, very grateful and uh, look forward to continuing it as long as I can contribute. Fantastic. Now, on, the, on that context, 30 years at the helm of the president of Life Chiropractic College West, and, and you've seen chiropractic flourish, no doubt, and struggle in the U.S., 
What's your view on the way the carpeting's been like in the US over these decades, and, and where do you think it's heading? Well, you know, I ended the career in a chiropractic uh, before universal licensure was established in the United States. Uh, Louisiana and Mississippi were still struggling to get licensed. Uh, we went through the phases where the uh, profession gained acceptance. Uh, we began involvement with uh, our federal programs such as Medicare. The crediting agency was recognition recognized by our federal government. Uh, things moved forward. We went into the Wilkes suit days and the and the activities on the part of the American Medical Association to quote contain and eliminate the chiropractic profession. Close quote. Uh, you know, we're, we're brought to light and we're exposed. And we moved on to the 80s in the insurance industry and began to appreciate what we did and had our coverage expanded and things did very well. And then the 90s came along and, and managed care came into play in the United States. And it has continued to evolve since that time. And it frankly has thrown all of the balls of healthcare into the air. And, um, they continue to, to, to fly around, and as everybody looks for the, a better way to package, a better way to deliver, a better way to measure healthcare, uh, and uh, obviously with our most recent presidential election, uh, we're, we're back in the soup with, with everything being thrown into the wind regarding healthcare. So all of healthcare in the United States, quite frankly, is, is, is in flux at the moment, uh, and the chiropractic profession is no different. Along the way, we have spent a great deal of time thinking about what's the system going to look like into the future and what's the best way to position ourselves to be part of that system in the future. And some people have made what I think are good decisions and wise decisions. Some people have made decisions that don't make any sense to me uh, as we move forward. But they're jockeying for positioning in terms of being able to contribute the most that, that the profession can as, as the system evolves and moves forward. Uh, so, you know, right now, the profession, there's probably 70,000 chiropractors practicing in the United States. Uh, there are some states where the profession and, and practices are moving along great. There are other states where reimbursement practices are lower and things are a little tighter and a little leaner. Uh, and also, uh, we've got lots of people in other disciplines that are looking at what we do and why we do it, where 25, 30, or 40 years ago, they didn't give a darn about what we did. And now, all of a sudden, we've bent the wheat, we've brought the value to it, we've brought the attention to it, and now there's lots of people that want to do things very similar to what we do uh, that didn't exist 40 years ago. For example, so there's a different, for example there well, – I mean, uh, nature paths in the United States, okay. physical therapists in the United States, yep. osteopaths in the U.S., so on. Everybody wants to, to quote unquote, manipulate or adjust whatever the language they they want to apply to it, and all of a sudden they're they're interested in doing the very things that we uh, became good at. Yep. We defined ourselves by, and that that we improved and and we quantified, uh, and now. You know they're ready to, to to step in and take over, and we have we have competitors in the marketplace that just simply didn't exist thirty years ago. It's interesting you say the term managed care because in Australia we're starting to see uh, components of that heading into our uh, healthcare industry as well. And I know dental colleagues are experiencing situations where large cashed up health insurance uh, groups are purchasing clinics and putting. Uh, 
maybe sometimes inexperienced practitioners or foreign dentists in and charging no gaps uh, rates into into those sort of uh, health practices to attract uh, patients to come across. And we're then seeing chiropractic to a small degree. We're seeing components where health insurers are asking chiropractors to uh, validate why they do what they do, um, which, you know, in some ways, you know, we get that. I mean, chiropractors have got to do the right thing by what they do with their patients. We understand that component of it. But on the other side, if we put a cynical hat, we're wondering whether is this a sort of a segue into them starting to control and and mandate well, what we are doing with our patients. Is that something that well, we I- can learn from you guys in the US? Is that something that's happening in the US that we can learn from, from uh, Australia to the US? Oh, absolutely. And I think you can look at the emergence of, of what's referred to as managed care in the United States, and I could more or less guarantee you that it's coming your way. Uh, the bottom line is the system is is not sustainable as it is right now. Um, you know, we are our respective nations are putting incredible sums of money into healthcare. The United States put, puts more money per capita into healthcare than any any other country in the world, and we get a miserable return for investment in terms of of quality of life and life expectancy and so on. And Australia fares better than we do quite frankly, both in the dollars invested and the return on that investment. But the, 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 the need to get leaner and meaner in the delivery of health care is going to, going to continue to go up as the population ages, as the, as, as, as the population grows over time and the percentage of, of GDP that needs to be put toward health care continues to be squeezed. So there's going to be systems come in to try and, and uh, refine the delivery and the payment system. Uh, we're going to wind up paying for care differently than we have in the past. The fee-for-service model in the United States is fading fast, and, and the managed capitated environment is coming in very quickly. And it, well, I shouldn't say coming in. It's here. It's growing very dramatically. Uh, and those are all changes that, that, quite honestly, have no boundary in terms of national borders or state laws or national laws. Uh, they're they're economically driven, and uh, you know they'll they'll be coming your way for sure. It's interesting we turn our attention now to say chiropractic research, and we all know the second model and uh, the second model trying to improve patient outcomes, including clinical experience, patient values and expectations, as well as clinical evidence. So when we talk in the reference of chiropractic research now, Jerry, how do you reconcile perhaps our paucity of chiropractic research between these two other elements in the second model? Well, when when I think of the second model, the first thing that comes to my mind is how often um, researchers in particular, uh, policy people secondarily, and funders on a tertiary level forget two-thirds of SACIT's discussion. You know, they're ready to, to jump on the evidence and, and jump on the RCTs. They forget about the judgment of the practitioner. They forget about the desires and the wishes of the patient as part of that equation. Uh, and, it, and it's important for us to, to understand that what Sackett talked about was, was a three-legged stool and that it doesn't stand on one part of it alone. It stands on all three. Relative to your question about research, I'll give you a very simple example here in the United States. There has been no other discipline in the history of the United States that has had to fund its own research from its own revenues and its own dollars like chiropractic has. 
When we look at the budget of the National Institutes of Health, the billions and billions of dollars that are invested in healthcare research are staggering. Uh, And the reality is that we have been apart from that funding mechanism. We've been apart from that funding stream throughout our entire history. And I don't know the details and the facts of what the situation is like in Australia, but I would I would guess or venture a guess that it's not too different than it is in the United States, that the amount of money that's coming from government to research the issues and the and the concerns and the and the clinical concerns that we have is is infinitesimal in relationship to what's being put into drugs and surgery and, and procedures of that nature. So while uh, who isn't in favor of more research? Who isn't in favor, in favor of more robust research? The reality is that the development of those research infrastructure processes and, and structures uh, and elements, excuse me, uh, is, a, is a usually a combination of uh, the discipline involved, government involved, and the consumer that's involved. Uh, and unfortunately, we've never been admitted to that uh, that discussion on a level where we can contribute and participate effectively. Uh, so, yeah, we, we, we need more research, no question about it. Um, at the same time, uh, we don't need to stop what we know to be clinically effective from our experience and from the patient experiences uh, over the years while we wait for the RCTs to catch up with us. The example I used to use for years was you know, we've used an electric light bulb for a long time. We never knew whether the electricity went through the filament, around the filament, or over the filament, but we used the light from the electricity electric bulb for a long, long time. You and I have had lots of light that we've seen in our careers as a result of the care that we provide, and we haven't understood the mechanisms fully. We should. We need to. And if we do, we'll do better at it. But in the meantime, we don't want to stop using the light. So. You know, this is a, a a pragmatic consideration in the 21st century that, that we need to come to grips with. We need more. We need partners and funding. And, and we need to understand and government needs to understand how we can dramatically influence the costs of health care in a very effective way. And if you, you appreciate the role that musculoskeletal health plays in the cost to government and the monies that are wasted, by the strategies that are applied in general practice of health, in the general practice of healthcare versus what we could do, it's it's unconscionable that more research money isn't put in our direction from a government perspective. Look, it's no different in Australia. I mean, I can't quote figures, so I have to be a bit careful. But I can, I feel pretty comfortable. We can say that the government grants, the NHMRC grants, uh, are pretty small in regards to what we get from a from a chiropractic perspective. Um, if I look at the national health budget for chiropractic in, in this country, I know that we get a very small amount of that, perhaps through our chronic disease management program uh, that we're open to because we're a registered provider uh, with other uh, professions. So it is small. And I think, I mean, I think there's an era change now. I think that perhaps during a certain stage, maybe in the 90s, perhaps we could say the chiropractic may have been a bit, uh, a bit slack with maybe trying to be attract, trying to get that message out about the importance of research. And I think now, as we get to the two thousands, and as the climate is more challenging, more questionable, more accountable, which is fair enough. It's that's all okay. 
I think now we're recognising more than ever we've got to be pouring money into research, robust research, and have those sort of discussions that can, as you say, I suppose, put the neurophysiology mechanisms to what we do with practice and um, versus perhaps uh, not doing that sort of work. Is that, I suppose, your conclusion as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we look at, say, if we just go to a different area, and, and, and I'm thinking to myself with this podcast, we're going to have some chiropractic students who are going to be listening to this, and they won't probably know the history of chiropractic. So with, uh, as a profession, we've had divisions between perhaps in the 80s and 90s, the straights versus the mixes, and I suppose nowadays we have those that are probably hardcore evidence-based versus those that are hardcore vitalists, if you like, and then the rest of the profession, which I tend to think, there is more of us that are actually having bits of both components. With your career in education and your experience, Jerry, what's your interpretation of, of, of how chiropractic aligns in this landscape? Well, you're right. We've had these divisions uh, that go back to our earliest days. Uh, and in our earliest days, we were a personality-driven profession. You know, it was BJ and it was DD and it was people that we only needed to know their initials to know who we were talking about and, and the significance that, that they had to the profession. And it, it was based upon a, a perspective of a fiat that, you know, if BJ said it, then that's the way it was. And years later, if Joe Jancy said it, then for another group, that's that's the way it was. Uh, and and, and the, the discussions went on over time. The truth of the matter is those divisions of straight mixer of evidence versus philosophy or you know uh, some other straw man argument they have been created by people in the profession to support a political position within the profession uh, quite frankly they're unnecessary uh, and you know one of the things that I have have always been um, uh, concerned about in our circles, is that you know we we see differences between practitioners and among practitioners, uh, and we think it's a horrible misgiving and a failure of the discipline. And then we look at medicine and across the spectrum of medicine to get, deal with a given problem. There might be a counseling approach, there might be a medication approach, there might even be a surgical approach to it. And we don't say, "Oh my God, look at those people across that spectrum." You know, they're they're nuts. But we make that presumption about us, that we somehow have to be this homogenized, consistent thing across the perspective that everybody behaves, behaves in a robotic, consistent fashion, day in and day out, patient after patient. And then, to make matters worse, we weaponize our differences. And they, we, we use those weapons to then defend the positions that we hold. And it's 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 a crazy system, you know. I think you made reference to, you know, uh, hardcore evidence people and hardcore vitalists. I, I don't know what the hell that means. <laughs> I, that doesn't mean anything to me, you know. From from a perspective of, do I want to use evidence where evidence is available? Yes. Do I want to create more evidence uh, to support what it is we do or change what we do in light of the evidence? Of course. Do I want to continue to understand and appreciate that the body is a self-healing, self-repairing, self-regenerating entity and that left to its own devices, it does a pretty darn good job of doing just that? Yeah. Do I want to do things that support both of those perspectives? Yeah. 
Well, does that make me hardcore one end or hardcore the other end of the perspective of this of this continuum? I, you know, the only reason for someone to say you're there and I'm here is to make them feel good about where they are by putting somebody else down. It's asinine. We need to stop it. You know, and I think about it, and I'm not sure what you think for your figures. I can only talk about my understanding in Australia, and I think there's probably maybe 10% on either side. You know, there might be 10% of either side that may be sort of very one way or the other, then there's possibly 80% of the Kaipiti population that actually probably don't realise they're more aligned than they think and yep. uh, and thereby, you know, go through maybe in some circumstances unnecessary implosions that really don't help the profession going forward and also put young students who don't, who may not have the backgrounds in chiropractic question why they do what they do. So, you know, there's all these other sort of added responsibilities. At the end of the day, we've all got to be accountable. We've all got to be professional. And we've all got to try and, to the best of our abilities, work together because that will get us the overall better result. Uh, but uh, it's interesting how we've sort of, uh, in some cases, chiropractic, we've, we've imploded with that. So, look, maybe there's areas that we can certainly learn from and, and move forward with. Let's move to the formulation of Rubicon. Joey, what was the trigger for its creation? Well, the, the Rubicon Group was uh, organized or had its first meeting in September of 2012. Uh, and it was very simply um, a meeting to discuss the idea that in the overall structure of chiropractic education, uh, there were a group of institutions who had concerns about uh, the direction that the educational community was taking uh, and that it required, we felt it required uh, a, a conversation to see what steps were necessary, if any, to make sure that the concerns and the areas of, that we held to be important as individual institutions were uh, advanced and protected over time. Uh, and out of that, after a series of meetings over a number of years, uh, came the formation of the Rubicon Group. Uh, and the, the Rubicon, if you visit the Rubicon website, which is the rubicongroup.org, uh, it's it's uh, not very wordy. <laughs> it's uh, very graphically oriented. Uh, and you can look at the, at the mission of the Rubicon Group. Uh, there's nothing alarming about it. There's nothing radical about it. Um, and we have a, a series of four areas uh, uh, that we feel are important uh, for the future of the profession, uh, and we're working to advance those four areas. We're not mad at anybody. We're not arguing with anybody. We're not fighting with anybody. We're simply trying to advance these four areas uh, in the marketplace and in the educational community of the profession uh, because we feel that they are key and critical to our identity into our future and 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 our sustenance over time, so pure and simple. Can you enlist those four areas for our listeners? Sure, sure. The first and foremost is an orientation to a neo-vitalistic perspective uh, on life and health and well-being. And when we say vitalistic, we might as well get that on the table right away. I'm not talking about the French perspective of the 1700s. We're talking about a neo-vitalistic, a post-Newtonian uh, quantum perspective on, uh, on vitalism. Uh, 
Uh, and the the concept that we're talking about that we refer to in the neo-vitalistic perspective is, is we can sum it up very simply by saying the body is a self-healing, self-repairing, self-generating, self-renewing entity, and that our attention and our focus and our activities ought to be directed first and foremost to allowing that the expression of that capacity of the individual and the capacity of, the, of systems to bring about those changes in the individual. The second consideration is an emphasis on the neurological characteristics of the vertebral subluxation. Now, I know that we've had all sorts of, of discussions over the years in the profession uh, about the term subluxation. Um, you know, we haven't had a good definition of subluxation. And in fact, one of the things that, that the Rubicon Group has done is that we've spent the last two years working on an operational definition for chiropractic, excuse me, for subluxation. And, and we're prepared to bring that forward in the very near future. So that is the second consideration. The third consideration is an orientation to the uh, traditional perspectives of the profession uh, relative to uh, our origins, our direction in healthcare and in the system. And then the fourth consideration is a recognition of what you might call the biopsychosocial components. We refer to them uh, as, as simply the, the quality of life considerations, uh, that the importance of, of food, of air, of exercise, of attitude, of perspective, of community, uh, and looking at the, going back to the original definition of the World Health Organization of uh, mental, spiritual, and physical well-being being the definition of health. Uh, so that's the perspective. Those are the four areas of emphasis for the Rubicon Group, um, and uh, we frankly don't think they're radical. We think they're pretty common sense, uh, and we think that they're they're rather straightforward. Uh, there's a lot to be learned about every single one of them, and there's a, there's plenty of work in each of them that needs to be done uh but that's our mission and that's our direction so you know they're fluid they're not fix, fixated they're they are uh, terms and principles and premises that i suppose will evolve and grow and you know as as absolutely as dictated by research and uh those components is that a, is that a fair comment yep our our documents are not carved in stone with a chisel they're on a computer that you can edit with a click of a mouse. And as the as the data changes, as the information changes, as the research changes, as the political structures change, as the, the, the environments that we need to respond to change, we change. If we Life is about adaptation, period. If we turn our attention to the Australian landscape, and I suppose we have a situation in Australia with four universities with, R, with RMIT, Macquarie, Murdoch, and CQU. Why do you think there's a need for the development of a private college in Australia? Well, I guess the, the first thing I'd like to clarify is that that question implies that the Rubicon Group uh, had something to do with the development of that college in Australia. Uh, quite honestly, the d decision to develop the Australian College of Chiropractic did not begin with the Rubicon Group. Uh, we have responded to a request for help from that group, uh, and we're happy to respond to that. But there was a recognition from within Australia that there was an aspect of the profession and characteristics of the profession uh, that were not being adequately represented within the educational community of the profession and ultimately, therefore, not being represented within the practice community of the profession. And the, the individuals involved uh, 
uh, centered around the Adelaide area, decided to step up and do something about that and began the process of organizing an institutional effort uh, and, and uh, to develop a freestanding uh, chiropractic program. And, uh, you know, when we look at the, the realities of universities versus a freestanding institution, I had the good fortune of being president of a single degree granting institution for 30 years. As president of a single degree granting institution, you must be responsive to the environment. You must be responsive to the discipline. You must be responsive to the needs of the market, or you're not going to be around. A university program doesn't have to do that. A university pro if, if the chiropractic programs at the four institutions you talked about cease to exist tomorrow, the universities would be fine. They would move along. They would be healthy. They would be fine academic institutions and so on. So they don't need – they didn't need, don't need to be responsive to the discipline the way a single degree granting institution does. That change in focus changes how you structure your curriculum, changes in how you – the emphases you bring within the institution and the level of instruction, and, and it changes uh, every single exchange in the classroom over the course of that education. So I think, you know, there are considerable advantages to a university structure, obviously. You know, you don't need to go about building a library. You don't need to go out building labs and so on. They exist. Uh, but at the same time, there's considerable drawbacks to that environment. You know, in anticipation of this conversation, I was thinking that it was uh, 29 years ago um, that I was in Sydney at the World Chiropractic Congress uh, that was uh, held, uh, some of it at the Opera House and some of it at the Intercontinental Hotel uh, uh, there near Circular Quay. And I was on a debate panel with uh, several people. Um, I think Keith Charlton was one of them. Uh, I want to think, I think Peter Drake was another uh, and myself. And the discussion was the value and the risk of university engagement. And as nice as it is to say that your programs are within university structures, there are things the profession gives up. There are things the curriculum gives up in order to get that recognition and involvement. And, you know, persons have looked around and said, you know, looked around in Australia as well as in other parts of the world and said, is it worth the cost to get the benefit? And apparently the decision of the, the, the analysis of that that calculation in, and for some folks in Australia was, no, it wasn't. And they began the process to establish a new institution. Okay. So we can clarify there maybe one misconception that people were thinking that Rubicon started the, uh, the, the college in Australia. So that's certainly not the case. Absolutely not. One thing I, that to pursue, I suppose, in this sort of area is, is you know, the, with universities come those sort of the concepts of reputation, good reputations. What sort of assurances can you give those sisters to back to a chiropractors who are concerned about this that we're going to have a good ex, a good extension of our reputation having the private college? You know, it's going to be a situation we're going to be producing some good quality research. We're going to be producing some students who are critical thinkers, you know, that are going to look at the fact that in national law in Australia, we have to diagnose what we're looking at for primary reasons and for referrals out, be collaborators as chiropractors in, in this, in, in our, in our Australian frameworks. What sort of reassurances, assurances can you give there, Jerry? 
Well, I have confidence and I've learned to have confidence in the infrastructure uh, of education and then of disciplines within within that within a given uh, disciplines within the broader field of education. The tertiary educational quality standards in Australia is not going to allow uh, a, 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 a poor quality program to come forward. Uh, there are standards to be met. There are standards on a federal level. Uh, there are standards on a discipline level that have to be met, so on. So let's let's take it out of the idea that this institution gets to develop any way it wants, whatever it wants to do, teaching whatever it wants to do. That's silly. Yep. The same requirements that exist for the four institutions you made reference to exist and will exist for this institution. If they don't meet those requirements, they won't be accredited and they'll cease to exist. If they do meet those requirements and they receive the accreditation and they receive the approval of TEXA, then the, the reality is that they're meeting the standards that those other educational institutions meet. If we want a local example, look at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic and look at its relationship with the NCQA. Now, your Aussie colleagues may not appreciate this, but TEXA is modeled to a great degree after the NZQA. Now, the New Zealand College is accredited by CCE Australasia, is recognized by TEXA at level one with self-reporting status with the highest possible grades that an institution can achieve under the NZQA system, producing more research on a dollar-for-dollar, person-per-person basis than any other chiropractic institution that I know of in the world. Okay, Dollar-for-dollar, pound-for-pound, what kilogram for kilogram, I guess, in your world, <laughs> uh, they're doing more than anybody else is. Now, that to me says, number one, it can be done. Number two, it is being done. And when you appreciate the fact that the New Zealand College is one of the significant components of the Rubicon Group, and it is making itself, its resources, and its experiences available to the Australian College of Chiropractic, you should have a great deal of confidence that those things that you express concerns about are, are straw man arguments and they're fictitious. The reality is they have demonstrated how it can be done, that it can be done effectively, it can meet the standards, and it can help set the standards. And the bottom line is that that's the aspiration and goal of the folks associated with the Australian College, as I understand them. And I suppose the caveat is that the CCCA uh, is going to be accrediting all courses in Australia, so it has to reach those minimum standards. And uh, if it doesn't, it won't get accreditation, as you as you alluded to earlier. So there are some uh, accountability checks along the pathway by this, by certain there, there, once you understand that the the requirements of TEXA and so on there are enormous accountability requirements uh, and you know for people to think that that they can just go ahead and decide to do something on a whim and a prayer uh, that that just defies logic it's just plain silly I want your view on chiropractors and 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 chiropractors being collaborative. I mean, I, I think that certainly we've been criticised as chiropractors that we tend to often practice in silos. We don't engage with other allied health practitioners or medical practitioners. And personally, I think maybe some of it comes from our our teaching clinic setups where we're a bit more localised. We're not in settings where we've got 
next door an exercise physiologist or a podiatrist or even a physiotherapist or even a medical practitioner in our, in our setting where we can all work together. And, and culturally, we don't sort of learn that. Suddenly, then we go into private practice. We either run a practice or an associate in effect. And unless we make those big steps to integrate and connect, we, we don't become great, great collaborators. What's, what's your thought about that from your perspective in the U.S.? As, as collaborators, are we good at it and can we get better? Well, number one, I think we can get much better at it. Yeah. Uh, number two, we're not good at it predominantly because we haven't had the opportunities as opposed to being unwilling to do it. Uh, you know, the relationship, I made reference in the early opening remarks about the, the Wilkes suit. you got to keep in mind that 30 years ago this year, the decision from the courts said the American Medical Association was guilty of an illegal boycott to contain and eliminate the chiropractic profession. Well, if that's the environment that you're going to collaborate in, good luck. The bottom line is collaboration takes two sides. And have we not have we had a minimal amount of experience at collaboration? That is absolutely true. Is that because we haven't wanted to collaborate? or we haven't had the opportunity to collaborate. It's a little bit of both. You can only get kicked in the groin so many times before you say, I'm not going to do that again. And the reality is that the circumstances of healthcare are changing. The systems are demanding collaboration. Patients are, are demanding collaboration. And we need to, to have more opportunities for it. But we need to do it on an equal footing. I'm, I don't want to come in as somebody else's dead uh, bedpan scrubber. I want to con come in and I want to contribute to the top of my license, the top of my degree, and the top of my skill to the benefits of the people that I care for. And given that opportunity in an equal and, f and, and fair footing, I think we're going to do great. And we'll collaborate till the cows come home. But to say that we don't collaborate because we don't want to or we're incapable of it. I, I reject that completely. That's just simply wrong. If I throw another layer to this, though, and say, for instance, the, with, our, with our approach of being drugless and surgical-less in our philosophy, are we able – and let's take a scenario, a hospital setting says, hey, come into our setting as a chiropractor. Don't, don't worry about any of the politics – We've got a situation where that two-way street has now become as a reciprocation where they would want us to go into a hospital setting. Would chiropractors be willing to collaborate in this setting? Would it be a philosophical reason not to work in that setting, do you think? Absolutely not. There would be no reason not to. First of all, what is a hospital? A hospital is just a place where services are aggregated, equipment is aggregated, and patients are aggregated to, to, to respond to a more critical need that exists in other places. Now, if we're talking about coming into that environment, bringing our skills, our talents, and our, our unique contribution to healthcare uh, for the patient's best interest, oh, of course there's room for us. Of course there's an opportunity for us. And because we choose not to use a scalpel or we choose not to use a prescription pad does not have anything to do with our participation in that environment. Those people that do those things, God bless them, go do them and do them well. We do something different. The problem comes in when it, when we take this, this 
very bizarre mindset that says in order to function in that environment, I've got to be like them. I've got to be trained like them. I've got to do the same thing that they do. Well, they've already got that. Bring something new, bring something unique, bring something that they don't have to the table and make a contribution. That's where the power is. That's where the strength is. And that's where you can improve that hospital environment. I have no problem with a chiropractor going into a hospital environment at all. Uh, I think that there's great opportunity. And I think the experiences that have shown in the United States, when when chiropractors are given an, uh, an eyeball to eyeball, shoulder to shoulder opportunity to uh, provide care for patients uh, in in those environments, the respect level for the chiro- chiropractor skyrockets, the demand for their care skyrockets, uh, and the the reduction in suffering uh, is remarkable. Let alone the reduction in cost. So I I don't you know a hospital is just a place. Period. You know. And it's interesting. We've got psychologists, exercise physiologists who I suppose share a similar philosophy that they don't administer drugs nor give surgery and they work in those sort of settings, I suppose, is another segue, another example. I mean, if you go down the list, you take speech therapists, you take occupational therapists, you take physical therapists and so on. There's ultimately, in the final analysis, more people that don't prescribe drugs and surgery in that environment than there are people that do. It's interesting. Now, as we know in life, we have supporters and adversaries. So when anyone takes a strong stand on something, uh, there will be some heat that comes with this. So what I really appreciate, Jerry, is that we've we've only met once a couple of years ago, very briefly. So there's no background connection between yourself and myself. And uh, I messaged you in the last week saying, look, I've, uh, there's, there is some uncertainty by some Australian chiropractors and groups on the objectives of Rubicon. And you said to me, you'd like those questions answered. So now I'm going to turn to some of the questions from uh, some of the forums that we put this information out to and to make it really clear, to make it uh, – there's, there's going to be no editing of any of the questions that we've chosen. We obviously can't choose every single question, so they come unedited with, and also with the name of the author that uh, is attached to it. So do you mind if we start addressing those, Jerry? I'm ready. Okay. This is from Kuiper Stuart Ward. <clears throat> Stuart asks, why does the Rubicon Group feel it has to mandate to interfere with Australian educational standards? The Rubicon Group has done nothing of the kind. Uh, We have not uh, sought a single change in the standards of the CCEA. We haven't written a single letter to the chiropractic board. Uh, We haven't engaged TEXO on on any subject whatsoever that has to do with educational standards. we're not an educational standard setting entity. It's not our job. Uh, and we haven't done that. We have responded to a request from your colleagues in Australia who have said, will you help us if we undertake this mission? And we've said yes. You know, there are seven institutions that are involved in the Rubicon Group. Uh, they all maintain one to two levels of, of accreditation with various, various agencies around the world. They've had a great deal of experience. And they've had a great deal of experience in bringing new institutions out of the ground and into fruition. Uh, And we'd like to make that experience available to your colleagues in Australia who are seeking that same mission. The next question is from chiropractor Alex Fielding. Alex asks, what is Rubicon's definition of subluxation and what high-impact research does it know of discussing its impact on human health? As I said, I think a few moments ago, uh, Rubicon has has been working on a, a definition of subluxation for a couple of years now, and I expect that we should have a release of a, of a 
operational definition potentially within a matter of weeks. Uh, perhaps it might take a couple couple months or so to go from there. So uh, I'm going to ask you to pay attention <laughs> toward the future, and we'll see a definition that will emerge. But I think it's safe to say that, that as a group, we view uh, what we refer to as a, as a subluxation as a central segmental motor unit disturbance that results in maladaptive uh, central nervous system and neuroplastic changes in the human. Uh, and I think that that perspective is fully defensible from a, from a basic science standpoint. It's defensible from a clinical science standpoint. Uh, and that's the perspective that we're running with uh, in developing and attempting to craft the language to fully embrace uh, that in a, in a uh, an operational sense. Relative to the, the high impact work, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, the, the author, uh, the gentleman's name expects out of, uh, high impact work. But when you talk about the idea that cervical spine adjusting influences the frontal lobe and executive function capacities, as has been established by the research by Havik and Holt and others, uh, that to me is pretty stunning research. And if you appreciate the implications of the changes of the neuroplastic changes that have that resulted as a result of chiropractic care, correction of a subluxation, uh, as they refer to it, it's staggering. So I don't know what your colleague is looking for for high impact, uh, but in 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 my world, when you start doing something that can change executive function capacity in the central nervous system in the frontal lobe in particular, that, that's some pretty serious stuff and some pretty exciting stuff. And I call that damned high impact. I think there's a couple of things just to add to that if I could. So I think from a subluxation perspective where chiropractors have dropped the ball would be the any chiropractors who say that's a cause of all disease. And we know that's not the case. So those that go back to perhaps the doctrines in the – with DD and BJ, who were at their point of time talking what they thought at that point of time. So I think chiropractors who talk about it as being the cause of all disease get us get uh, get us in a bit of trouble. Th- you know, let me st- let me stop you right there. Yep. I-, I have been a chiropractor for almost fifty years. Okay. And I have never heard a single chiropractor make that statement. I've read about it. In text from the from the 1900s, and 1920s, 1930s, 19 early 1940s, I've never heard a person. And I mean, I dealt with with some of the very visible people. Sid Williams was one of my early mentors, and so on. I never heard a single one of them said that point blank. Now, was that written about in 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 the text of of early days gone by? Absolutely, it was. But if you want to compare crazy comment for crazy comment from the medical literature and the chiropractic literature, I'm ready any day of the week. And so, and some of the perspectives that were offered uh, in, you know, in the early part of, the, of the, the, the 20th century on the part of medicine were barbaric, were barbaric. And it makes a statement uh, that you made reference to uh, look pale in comparison. I don't know a single chiropractor in my world today that supports that perspective that a subluxation is the cause of all disease. I don't think, know a single one. Yeah, I think, and that's 
when I think about it, I mean, that's what I hear too. So, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a fair comment. I think one thing that we need to be measured with is, and I think even Heidi and Kelly, who are doing some of the primary research, know that this is work in progress regards the work they're doing with the research. And we've got to be measured into the degrees of what impacts it does. I think we've just got to be obviously intellectually honest with our patients when we say this is what's happening we're still to come back to the patient right in front of us and provide the the intervention, be the adjustment or whatever application we provide that we think is going to be best for that point of time and just know that this is this is a long game. It's not a short game. We've got a lot to do with regards to scientific rigour for it, but we certainly shouldn't be throwing that baby out of the bathwater. You know, we've got uh, – we, we can't afford to just let it all go and then decide, okay, now we're ready to go because we're going to lose the fact that chiropractic has worked for over 120 years and worked well. Um, I, I think of situations like, for instance, the blood pressure kit. You know, that took 25 years from invention to actually be accepted as a medical device. And I think to myself, gee, imagine if in uh, in the early stages of invention people said, well, we can't use it, we can't explore it, we can't develop the research to look at it, we're just going to say it's, it's not valid and that's it. Well, we wouldn't be using probably what's accepted as one of the most uh, used medical appliances worldwide. So that it's trying to sort of find that I think that balancing edge a little bit. And I think the other area that thereby gets us into that may have got us in a little bit of trouble is the fact that we don't have a consensus statement for what the subluxation is. I mean, we, we, we've, we've for over 120 years we haven't got together around the table and come up with a definition that that most of us would be happy with that we could use in our practices, use on our websites, using international organisations. And, you know, we're not going to please everybody all the time, of course, but at least have that majority that thinks that's, that's workable, it's plausible, and, um, uh, and then have that sort of consensus because we spend a lot of time worrying about it. Uh, it's important that we can have a definition for our profession I mean, we're entitled to have a, a term that we've used for our lexicon for, for, for a long time. We've got to, I suppose, have its frames and its parameters that we define it for, uh, but we've got to get it that we can have sort of some collaboration around the concept. What do you think? I agree completely. I agree completely. You know, I look at the, at, at the definition of different uh, conditions in medicine over time and, and how they have evolved. And, you know, what was autism 30 years ago is now part of autism spectrum disorders and so on. Uh, if, if we look at, at how language has changed, as, as information is available, as experience is available, the explanations for how it works changes. And, and why would we think that we wouldn't have the same need and responsibility? You know, it's, it's as if we approach this logically by saying we need one statement that is the Magna Carta of chiropractic and subluxation that will exist for all time and into eternity and won't change. Well, well, that's the nuttiest thing I've ever heard of. The bottom line is it changes potentially with every article that's published, with every patient that's seen. Is there a chance to, for it to be refined? So, yes. But is there a starting point that we need, we can agree on that that has you know common denominational elements? Uh, that that uh, common denominator elements that 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 we can use as a basis and move forward. We we as a discipline 
And in particular, I would say my colleagues on my side of the discipline have done a very poor job in bringing that definition forward. And the Rubicon Group wants to do what it can to correct that that weakness and begin a dialogue toward the end that you're describing. From Alex Fielding again, another question. What is Rubicon's view of the biopsychosocial model of healthcare? Well, I think I made reference to that earlier, that, that if you look at the, the, the four areas of involvement, um, what was talked about in the late 70s, uh, I think it was 77, that the, that the concept of, of biopsychosocial was brought forward, uh, you know, very simply that, that we weren't simply biomedical entities. Uh, that we were far more complex that, than that, that biomedicine was part of it, uh, and that, that there was a far broader reality that we deal with, uh, and that, that we are the products of our environment, we're the products of our thoughts, we're the products of, of our foods, we're the products of our behavior, we're the products of our physiology, we're the products of our genetics, etc. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there is no disagreement with that perspective uh, within the Rubicon uh, circles, um, and um, you know, I just never crossed my mind that that there would be a question that 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 would be part of what we uh, were all about. And hence, this is the importance of this podcast to try and make that you know get those clarities out there. I think we sort of answered this question, but uh, Alex has been pretty busy. He's got another question here: Is why does the Rubicon attempt to limit chiropractic scope to purely subluxation, given the the positive evidence regarding the subluxation existence? Well, let's let's break that into two things. The first half of the question: Read me the first half of that question. Why does Rubicon? Yep. So, why does Rubicon attempt to limit chiropractic scope to purely subluxation? It doesn't. It doesn't. Now, all, it, all we have said is that as a discipline, this thing that we refer to as the subluxation with its neurological components and its potential to impact uh, the nervous system uh, far removed from the local effect of the joint disturbance in the spine is important and needs study. No one has said that that is the full spectrum of chiropractic. No one has said that that uh, nutrition isn't necessary, that rehab isn't necessary. You know, no, nobody said that at all. And, you know, this this silliness on the part of the chiropractor that, that if you don't say every possible thing that could be done in a given situation, aha, you know, you, you've rejected it. No, I told you in the beginning, these are four areas that we think need to be advanced. If you think rehab needs to be advanced, God bless your advanced rehab. If you think something else needs to be advanced, good for you. Advance that. These are the four areas that are important to us. That's what we're trying to do. It's not in disrespect of anything else, not to the exclusion of anything else. I would say with one exception, that would be the drugs and surgery. You know, that we don't see chiropractic including the practice of chiropractic, including drugs and surgery. But beyond, short of that, I mean, I... No one's saying you must practice a given way. No one's saying that this is all there is to chiropractic, you know. And, and you know, frankly, I, I just don't know where people get this kind of stuff. And, and they have either a great deal of time on their hands or remarkably vivid imaginations. And I suppose the second part of his question was given the paucity of evidence regarding the subluxation existence. I, I don't think that's true. 
I think that the the, the clinical experiences that we have had uh, for 120 plus years uh, and the extreme uh, satisfaction that patients have had with us uh, has been a testament indirectly uh, to the very things that we have talked about. And because we have been unsuccessful in getting political agreement to a practice approach uh, that we have had over our time, that's another issue. So this idea that this that we have been somehow had this tremendous paucity of information, can we use more information? Absolutely. Can we use more research? Absolutely. More documentation? Absolutely. But as you, I think, alluded to before, the concept uh, that I first heard from Jay Triano, at, uh, who was at CMCC, that lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. Uh, and, you know, we have lacked evidence, but it's not evidence of lack. And I would reject beginning with that premise. It's interesting uh, understanding that the New Zealand College of Chiropractic has about 30 to 40 current projects going. Uh, they're in association with eight to ten colleges as well as universities around the world. And I think to myself, if we could have that replication through, doesn't you know? I don't even care what the I don't care if it's a university or a private college. I just I honestly don't care for a moment. If we just if we could just state that respectfully, we would have uh, volumes of information saying about what we're doing. So at the end of the day, I think the the question uh, the question coming from this uh, from Andrew uh, from Alex is answered to some degree by the fact that you know we we are where we're at. We're tr- and and, uh, and I suppose it's what I said a bit earlier. It's a long game. It's not a situation where we're definitive right now, and we can't drop the ball. We're going to keep putting the money back into this sort of research to look to validate what we do, and over time we'll start to work out. Maybe some technique approaches aren't up to it. We might determine that. And, that, and we have to be uh, intellectually and um, mature enough to accept that as chiropractors in the same way that we'd expect of other disciplines if they found that something that, that, that was applied as a technique system or an application didn't cut the mustard. Well, you know, we shouldn't be implementing that. I mean, what, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, we want to apply the best strategy for the patient at any given moment. I'll give you an example. M- my wife, if you adjust her upper cervical spine and her low back spine on the day- same visit, she is miserable for a day or two. Consistently, over 40 plus years of marriage with different I, I have I stopped adjusting my wife a long time ago. <laughs> I can put that in the hands of other people. Yeah. But But consistently, if they won't take that counsel and advice, I can tell you I got two or three miserable days with my wife ahead of me. Now, I don't understand that mechanism. I don't get it at all. But the bottom line is that's her pattern. If some people would respond well to upper cervical care but not to to full spine care, great. That's a patient selection and application process. It's not a deficiency of the technique. You know, if we look at the overall survive the overall value of coronary bypass surgery in the United States, for example, it's not anywhere near as profound as people think it is because the selection processes were so poor in the very beginning days. And if you if you showed a sign, you got it. Well, for one person that had their life extended, another person had their life shortened, and the net effect zeroed out. Well, the same thing goes on here. 
you know, there will be some technique approaches. Uh, myself, I have had rheumatoid disease all of my adult life. If I get full spine care with a robust adjustment, I'm in a world of hurt the next day. But if I get activator care, I do very well. So, you know, we, we, we use what we need to the patient for the patient in the given setting. I, I don't think that's any different than any other provider in healthcare. Anybody does. You know, it's exactly the same. I'm going to give Alex a rest now, uh, Jerry. So I'm going to move on to another chiropractor, Mike Swain. He asks, does the traditional principles of chiropractic mean to advocate practice education standards from the 1895? What's the gentleman's name? Uh, Mike. Come on, Mike. Give me a break. What kind of silliness is that? Of course it doesn't. That's, that's asinine. We'll move on for, to a question here, which is the last question uh, in the context here. So this is from Matthew Bullman. So what is Rubicon's position on commonly accepted public health measures, specifically vaccination? Does the new school in Adelaide plan to incorporate commonly accepted public health measures, measures such as the benefits of vaccination into its curriculum? If it's view vaccination as a non-chiropractic issue, does it support the government's position that vaccination, according to best evidence, is on the effective means for promoting uh, for public health? It's a very long question. Do you want me to break that up for you a little bit? Yeah, yeah Matthew, or uh, what's the gentleman's first name? Yeah, Matthew, yep. yep. Ma Matthew's trying to get four or five bites of the apple here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's, uh, yeah, let's break it down and yeah, take them one right. at a time. Yeah, fair enough. So let, let me just break it up. So first part of the question is, what is Rubicon's position on the commonly accepted public health measures, specifically vaccination? Uh, the Rubicon group has not articulated a position on vaccination. Okay. Does the new school in Adelaide plan to incorporate commonly accepted public health measures, measures such as the benefits of vaccination, into its curriculum? I can't speak for the program in Adelaide. Um, I can speak to the general discussion that certainly the concepts of immunology, uh, as they're understood and applied uh, in the 21st century, will need to be a part of the curriculum. Uh, but exactly how the institution decides to go about fulfilling that curricular requirement, I can't speak for them in that regard. And the final part, if it views vaccination, so if Rubicon, I suppose, views vaccination as a non-chiropractic issue, does Rubicon support the government's position that vaccination, according to best evidence, is an effective means for promoting public health? Well, the Rub first of all, the Rubicon group would not presume to tell the Australian government uh, one way or another how to approach their health decisions on their health policy decisions. Uh, so, you know, on, on some level, um, I, I appreciate uh, the gentleman's uh, desire to draw me into a uh, controversial position, <laughs> but uh, with all due respect, sir, uh, I I'm not going there. Uh, the, the bottom line is, you know, the, the United States, like Australia, is a democratic government environment. Your government develops policies and practice that it feels serves the best needs and the interests of the, of the population it serves, and the citizens respond accordingly. Now, on our Back Chat podcast, we uh, go to a pivotal experience of the person we interviewed. But are there any final thoughts, Jerry, on all, on uh, this podcast before we move into talking a bit about yourself personally to finish the podcast? Well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, there's a 
the questions and the conversation that we've had reveals to me a, a great gap in in awareness and in, in information and uh, people letting their fears and their misgivings run away with their thinking. Um, and the interests of the Rubicon Group uh, are essentially the interests of that 80 to 90 percent of the chiropractic world that you talked about uh, along the way in this conversation. Uh, our, our concepts are not extreme. Our concepts are not radical. Our concepts are not uh, inconsistent with science. Uh, and um, it would sure be helpful if people would uh, not respond in a knee-jerk fashion, would engage in dialogue and conversation in a constructive sense, uh, and uh, we can learn from one another along the way. Uh, that would be a good end and a good result, and I hope this contributes to that, that goal. I certainly think it has, Jerry. So to finish off with an ins inspirational experience, we always love to interview the with our interview ease that we interview to discuss a pivotal experience in their lives that perhaps can influence those that are listening to the show. Is there, is there one you'd like to share with us, Jerry, as we finish? Yeah, there is. <clears throat> you know, um, when I was a 12-year-old kid, um, I had uh, a series of falls, and I wound up with a series of fractures as a result of the falls. And uh, there was an orthopedist um, who was setting a, a, what was a boxer's fracture uh, in uh, in my um, my index finger. And uh, I'm 12 years old. He turns to my dad in the emergency room and he says, you know, as a joke, as a throwaway, he said, you want to get this kid's eyes checked. And it was a big joke and everybody laughed and the guy proceeded <laughs> to set the fracture, which wasn't comfortable. Uh, and, but my father did take me to a, to a, an ophthalmologist, and I did have my eyes checked, and I had had a very significant deterioration and loss in my eyesight. And my parents began to uh, travel around the United States, particularly the Northeast, and we went. We lived in Buffalo, New York, and we went to New York City, and then we went to Cleveland, Ohio, to the Cleveland clinics, uh, and there was a series of tests that were performed, and one, if you if you want to go back into the history of imaging and read about something really scary, look up a pneumoencephalogram. Uh, and if you can imagine being anesthetized, put into a chair, uh, your knees tucked up under your chest, they do a lumbar puncture, they drain the cerebrospinal fluid, and they replace the, the fluid with air. Now they've got some contrast between the air density that's now filling the ventricle and the rest of the brain, which is water density, they can create an image and take an x-ray. This is pre-MRI, pre pre-CT. And they did that procedure on me, and you wake up two days later, convinced your brain is being sucked through the floor of the skull because it was floating, not floating, not floating again. And uh, it's a it was a dramatic and traumatic procedure. And my parents were told I had one of two options, likely. Either I was had multiple sclerosis or I had a tumor at the optic chiasm. And um, their advice was get me into Braille school because I would likely be blind by the time I was 18. Well, this obviously was distressing as can be to my parents. Uh, they shielded me from as much of it as they could. But the bottom line was they were faced with a terrible dilemma. And um, my father had been had some low back problems in we lived in Buffalo, which is on the Niagara River on the border to, with Canada, and uh, we had a cottage in southern Ontario, and my dad saw a chiropractor over there in a place called Port Colburn, 
And uh, we went in on a Friday night after dad, my dad came home from uh, his work in the States. And we went in to see the chiropractor. And the fellow said, uh, where you been, Don? You missed a few appointments. And my dad explained what was going on with me and where we were and so on. And um, that night, I, I'll, I can remember it as clearly as this conversation I'm having with you right now in a six-chair waiting room and a second-story office over Pajetto's Meat Market in Port Colborne, Ontario. This chiropractor took out a Boyd's Pathology and a Guidance Physiology and a Gray's Anatomy and uh, started to explain to my dad what bilateral optic atrophy of idiopathic origin of progressive nature meant. My dad was a smart guy, but he was not a well-educated guy. He had a 10th grade education, went on to be a very successful businessman, uh, but he was intimidated by people that were well-educated. And I can remember sitting in that chair, 12 years old, watching the fear and the suffering and the agony drain from my dad's face when somebody finally told him what the words meant and what was going on. He didn't understand anything better. He just got the words. He understood that part of the deal better, didn't understand the physiology and so on. And at the end of that evening, the chiropractor turned to my dad and said, you know, Don, I don't know if I can help the boy. I guarantee I wouldn't hurt him and I'd love the chance to try. And I got my first adjustment that night. And over the course of the next two months, I got adjusted three times a week. And then in the fall, we went back to our fall, September, we went back to the ophthalmologist. And this is the honest to God's truth. Camel cigarette in one hand, ophthalmoscope in the other hand, looking into my eye. And he said, said to <clears throat> lean forward, obviously looking into the eye. And he said, this is a miracle. So what'd you do to this boy? And my dad was standing behind him, and he said, we took him to a chiropractor. And this fellow took a puff of a cigarette, didn't move the ophthalmoscope one iota, and said, I wouldn't take my dog to a chiropractor. Well, all I knew is that the people he sent me to damn near killed me with their testing. The people that – the fellow that, that adjusted me, the chiropractor that took care of me, was a, one of the nicest men I'd ever met in my life. He was kind, he was compassionate, he was gentle, he was loving, and he was a great clinician. He had skills beyond imagination. And at the end of the summer, according to the ophthalmologist, I had experienced a miracle. And according to my experience, I'd been under chiropractic care. I made my decision to be a chiropractor at 12 years old, sitting in the chair at the ophthalmologist's office, right then and there. My mother was so distraught, not that I wanted to be a chiropractor, but nobody makes a career decision at 12 went to the parish priest and put Monsignor Ring. And uh, he sat down with her and she explained her, her troubles. And he said, Mrs. Columbia, I deal with parents all day long, day in and day out, who are concerned that their children don't know what they want to do. Yours appears to know what he wants to do. I would go home and help him. And all of a sudden, everything got okay. <laughs> and then I finished my high school career, began my chiropractic education. And that chiropractor that gave me that first adjustment, my son is Donald Cameron Clum. Donald was my father. Cameron was my chiropractor. And my grandson is Cameron Gerard Clum. Cameron was the chiropractor. Gerard is my middle name, my name, and so on. Three generations deep, the man's been gone for decades, continuing to have an influence on my life and my times with an adjustment. In the perspective of Sackett, he was as evidence-based as anybody I ever met, and he delivered the goods. Thank you, Jerry Clum. I think 
like uh, that experience describes 47 years of passion in the chiropractic. It makes a lot of sense. Thank you, my friend. I sure appreciate this opportunity, and I'm very grateful for the chance to spend this time with you. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward chat Backchat podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be available at our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you with one thought. Be the best at what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.